We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, we're joined by Sergeant John Mattingly. Sergeant Mattingly was involved in the raid that tragically ended in the death of Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky in 2020. He is out with a new book that provides a pretty fascinating alternative perspective to the one that has been offered by the establishment media and even some of us in conservative media have expressed concerns about what was allegedly a no-knock raid um, on the the apartment in question that night. But Sergeant Mattingly insists that he did knock. And I'm going to read a brief uh, snippet here from the Courier-Journal. Mattingly, who joined LMPD in 2000, sustained a gunshot wound that severed his femoral artery during the March 13th, 2020 raid, requiring an emergency surgery. He fired six rounds into the apartment after being shot, striking Taylor. The FBI concluded another officer, Miles Cosgrove, fired the fatal shot. So we talked to Sergeant Mattingly on this episode about that night. He walks us through what happened from his perspective that night. He walks us through what happened during the raid. He walks us through his experience after the raid, and he talks to us about some broader issues in our countries and our local communities' approach towards policing, um, something that has certainly been front and center since that summer, since that year, 2020. It's a very interesting interview. He has a very interesting perspective. It's certainly different than the one um, most of us have heard about that night and about that raid. So I hope you stick around for this really interesting conversation with Sergeant John Mattingly. Thank you so much for joining us, by the way. This one is one we've been looking forward to. How are you doing, John? I'm doing good and I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So tell us about, well, first of all, since this is your first time on the show, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and then we'll talk about your book. All right. Well, I I joined the Louisville Metro Police Department back in 2000 and um, I was a a beat cop on on night shift for five and a half years. And then I went to a, a detective unit that did mainly narcotics. It was called a flex unit. Uh, it was inside a division, and I did that for four years. And then when I was promoted to sergeant in 2009, I went back to the street for about a year. And then I went to our detective bureau as a sergeant. And then in 2015, uh, we started a, a violent crime unit that that focused on guns and and shooting suspect or yeah shooting suspects and and murders and that type thing. It's called the Viper Unit. And I did that from 2012. I'm sorry, I said 15, but 2012 to 2015. Um, and then I went to our, our major narcotics unit um, around 2016 and was there until the incident on the night of uh, March 13th. Right. Um, and your book focuses on that, of course. So one question I have right off the bat is, why did you decide to write this book? Well, there were so many false narratives out there. From day one, um, the the attorneys and the media we're pushing the, these crazy narratives like Brianna was asleep in her bed, that we had the wrong apartment, um, that uh, uh, Jamarcus Glover, the boyfriend that had put her in this position to begin with, the ex-boyfriend, um, was already in custody, which he was not. And so all these different lies were put out there. Uh, and our city, they had all the answers. Our department had all the truth and the answers, and they refused to to give the the truth. They, they refuse to debunk all the lies and they just let them continue to escalate and compound. And by the end of it, uh, you would have thought we were some 
rogue, murderous, white supremacist hate group that barged into this apartment unannounced and and shot Breonna Taylor in bed to steal her money. That was basically the theme going around. And uh, while the the narrative also was that this was a no-knock warrant, you know, we've got a ban no-knock warrants. Well, the warrant was originally signed as a no-knock, but it was executed as a knock and announced because once we knew where Jamarcus Glover was, that took away the elements of this being a no-knock warrant. And we actually gave them additional time because we thought it was only Breonna Taylor in the apartment. So we knocked on this door for 45 seconds to a minute and announced ourselves as police. And because of all these lies that are out there, somebody had to come out and tell the truth. There was nobody taking our side and standing up and saying, whoa, 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 this is all false. And because of that, our city had uh, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of damage. Businesses were shut down. Additional lives were taken during these protests. I believe 12 individuals total were shot um, during the protests over the 100 days, uh, including two other police officers. And so I thought it was important to get this truth out, to let not only our city know, but the country know how much culpability these politicians should be taking because of the lies, because of the, the inability to tell the truth. And they, they projected this as something that it wasn't. And the truth just needed to come out. So the book is 12 Seconds in the Dark, a police officer's firsthand account of the Breonna Taylor raid. And I, I was hoping you could walk us through and, and you just you just did some of this because the big contention here um, is that it was you, you are insistent that this was a, a you knocked. Um, and there are differing perspectives that the media has brought in from witnesses, people in, who were in the neighborhood at the time. You are you are insistent that there was a knock, correct? Oh, yeah. Kenneth Walker even says we knocked um, the knock part. Uh, and that, that's one of the things that shows the um, the lack of credibility of some of the people that they brought in. Not, you know, I understand living in a neighborhood um, where if you take the police aside, you're targeted. And I believe that's what happened in a lot of this. It became such a racial issue instantly that um, the people were scared to actually stand up and tell the truth. You had uh, the person upstairs in the, the apartment directly above Breonna Taylor has two recorded statements with both our um, city department and with the attorney general's office stating that he did hear us knock and announce because he came out when he heard us knocking and announcing. And uh, we got into a verbal altercation with him because he would not go back into his apartment. And one of their main witnesses that got on, I think, two of the different um, documentaries about this case. And, and she was on there going, they did not knock and announce. They didn't do all this stuff. Well, later on in her Facebook feed, uh, we've got it recorded where she got on there and said, I live two buildings away. There's no way I could have heard them <laughs> knock and announce. So the fact that that they used these individuals who were willing to stretch the truth, lie, do whatever it took, uh, just goes to show the, the malfeasance that took place in this case. Yeah, um, that that makes a lot of sense. And it's a really difficult thing, especially with emotionally charged cases like these. And this happened um, in a very emotionally charged sort of moment nationally that once a narrative gets set, it's incredibly difficult to debunk the narrative. And I'm curious as somebody who's written a book offering an alternative perspective and an alternative firsthand account here, right. um, how difficult you find it is to actually, you know, disabuse people of perhaps mistaken notions that have been developed and, you know, with, with good intent, you know, people who read a lot of news even, um, 
it must be really hard once that's set to change people's minds. It's almost impossible. And for the fact, the fact that the city, uh, this is over two years now, and our city and department has still not come out and debunked one of the lies. They've never come out and said, you know, we couldn't talk about it at the time because it was an investigation, but here's what we knew. And we failed to put it out. They haven't debunked one of those things. And what I told my kids, my, my adult children, uh, they had friends in, in the beginning who were posting stuff on social media and they were getting mad at them. And I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. The truth, number one, isn't out there. And second, we are taught or we think somehow it's instilled in us just naturally that if the news tells us something, why would they lie to us? We think it's the truth. And so many people believe that. And I said, just wait till the facts come out. And then if those friends still want to take that position, then you can have issue with it. But until then, let's give people the benefit of the doubt. But the problem is, once you, like you said, once that lies out there, I still have, there were people that watched Brett's trial, Hankinson's trial last a couple of weeks ago, and all the facts were laid out. All these things we're talking about were laid out in court and proven. And you still had people commenting going, yeah, but y'all shouldn't have broke in and, and killed her in her sleep. And I'm going, oh my goodness, did you not listen to any of the evidence? Because once they've made that mind up, it's so hard to change. And that's the danger uh, of it. And that's one of the things I talk about in the book is just the dangers of this, because you're chasing off so many great police officers who are willing to die for their community. And now they're saying, why would I risk this for a people that aren't going to believe anything I say? And when this Department of Justice is being weaponized and coming after these officers, yet letting all the bad guys who hurt police officers, who burn down federal courthouses, who do all these things, they're just getting dismissed. So it's it's going to be tough, but we've got to we've got to turn the tide and get the the average citizen involved so we can vote the correct way and get the people in office we need. You just mentioned something that I really wanted to talk about. Um, and I know I, I can't imagine sort of what this was like for everyone involved, because this was litigated in national and international media um, in just nasty ways, um, again, for everybody involved. But tell us more about um, what it was like to have kids in the community, what it was like to be a father, what it was like to be a member of the community um, when the entire community is sort of uh, being uh, being, let's say, soaked in in wrong information. I mean, I I know that it must have been really frustrating, but was it also really hard for your your family? Yeah, um, and that's what people don't understand. You know, the the effects of these lies, the effects of of the attacks on on us as officers who are, who are trying to do the right thing doesn't just affect us. Matter of fact, we can handle it fairly well because we've been, you know, I had 20 years of being cussed at, being yelled at, being called names. So you get kind of callous to it, being threatened. You know, you're taking somebody to jail. When I get out, I'm going to kill your family. You know, people say that stuff all the time. So you get kind of um, immune to it. Um, but then when your family's involved, they get affected more so than you do. And then that affects you in a different way that you've never had to deal with before. So now you're you're dealing with threats. You're dealing with uh, trying to calm your family down and then you're dealing with their stress. And so there are all these different dynamics that come into play that people like an Oprah or a LeBron James don't take into account when they reach out to their tens and hundreds of millions of followers and spread these lies. And then it in turn trickles down and affects communities, families and individuals. And it's just sad that that they are so selfish and unwilling and ignorant to learn the facts but so willing to throw people under the bus that they don't even know.
And it's a it's a tragic situation anyway you cut it. And of course, and I know this is true of you, immense compassion for the the family of Breonna Taylor, who has been through just so much. But it, it's also sort of interesting to see how, especially with police officers, um, just a snippet of their work um, when you know you're trying to do your job, when you're trying to follow the law, um, can be sort of taken out of context and misreported and be blown up in an instant into a national media story that has to be, that has to sort of weigh heavily on the minds of um, police officers these days, especially as you mentioned, it's, it's pushing a lot of people out of the job. Is that something that is really hanging in the minds in your experience of, of officers who are now in the field and have to make split second decisions um, and, and have to interact with members of the community and all of it could be, you know, beamed out to an international audience um, and preserved forever on the internet in a second. Yeah. I've had so many guys reach out to me and say, man, thank you for stepping up and talking because they're still holding the line. They're still in the battle. They're still on the street and they've talked about the hesitations and the thought in their mind of, man, if I take this next step, if I do this thing, even though it's the right thing, even though it's protecting me, what am I going to be portrayed as? What's going to happen to me? Am I going to get prosecuted? Am I going to get lambasted by the media? And that's causing officers to get hurt. It's causing community or uh, criminals to, to roam free in these communities. And you see the this year, the, the number of police officers shot and killed is even higher than last year, which was a record year. So the impunity that these criminals walk around with, knowing that there's not uh any teeth to this criminal justice system we have because these judges just recycle these bad guys. You know, if you want to talk about jail reform and, and police reform, you've got to start with judges because they're the ones responsible for letting these guys out and these district attorneys who are scared to prosecute cases because they're afraid they'll lose them. So very few cases that get taken to court actually get tried and convicted. Most of them get settled with some crazy weak plea deal that these guys uh, are simply serving, doing time served, and then on house arrest or whatever for violent crimes. And then they turn around and repeat. And then the problem with that is they get emboldened each time that there's no teeth or they're not held accountable. And then when police officers have to go lock them up and put hands on them, the result could be catastrophic because you see most of the cases where police use force and it becomes a, a national story most of these cases are dealing with repeat offenders that should have already been in jail or in prison. On our case, Jamarcus Glover, the guy, the whole reason we were there, I think he had five or six pending felony cases for guns and drugs. He had just been locked up in January, two months prior to this, for the same exact thing was let out. And so the problem needs to go back to fixing the judicial system. And then we can work our way down and it'll, it, that would eliminate most of the problems in, in all the other areas. So that's a that's another interesting uh, point, another interesting area of exploration. The I, I should I should start by asking if you could walk us through the sort of moments that led up to um, the the shots being fired, and then I want to ask um, you know basically what areas of reform you think are, are legitimate. Um, but if you could just describe for us, I know you've done this a million times, um, but I think for, for listeners, it's always helpful um, since it is so hard to get to the truth of these questions right. when there's there's information that's spread that, that's wrong for years. Um, you know, you tell a, a lie so many times, it just becomes the truth. So if you could walk us through those moments, um, I think that would be very helpful. Yeah. So 
the night was March 12th, uh, leading into March 13th, which was a Friday. Um, it was raining out. It was a full moon. Uh, I came out of the brief. I had two flat tires on my vehicle. So things were just kind of going, you know, the writing was on the wall that this, this is one of those nights where Murphy's law was just going to kick in. Mm. Um, we get to the, to the brief at, after we leave the main brief, we, we meet up at another location and uh, talk to these EMS guys that are young and, and inexperienced, seem like nice guys, but still young and inexperienced. And I thought to myself, my goodness, I hope these guys aren't the ones saving my life. Nothing against them. You could just, they look like they were my kids. That's mm. how young they were. And I was thinking, man, I know they don't have the experience. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we, we go to the apartment and when we pull up, there's a vehicle that had showed up right before we got there. And so my radar went up instantly because it was parked, not in a parking spot, but out in the parking lot in front of the of Brianna Taylor's apartment. Now, this is an eight plex. So we weren't sure which apartment this this individual had gone into. So the, the alerts up already. I go and I clear this vehicle and I make sure nobody's in it. We go up to the door. There's seven of us there. We're in kind of what's called a stack. So there's three of us on the left of the door because it's a small entryway that uh, has four doors in it and a staircase going upstairs. So it's all concrete and metal. And we're in there and we start banging on the door. And that's when the guy upstairs comes out. We get into the little argument with him, come to find out that was his vehicle parked out front. He, he had stopped there to pick uh, his daughter up. And so once he goes inside, we continue banging on the door and just yelling, please search warrant, police search warrant, come to the door. After about four knocks and announces, uh, Mike Nobles, the detective at the door with the ram said, hold on, I think I heard somebody. So we stopped and we listened for a minute. I didn't hear anything. So I yelled again before I knocked. And I was like, police, we have a search warrant. Can you come to the door? Still didn't hear anything. Didn't get a response. Banged one more time and announced. And at, at that point, my lieutenant looks at me and gives me the nod like, let's go. You know, we've been standing at this door for a minute now, and that seems like an eternity when you don't know what's on the other side of that door. So we ran the door, which is is the tool that, that's used to breach it. And on the third hit, the door comes open. I'm able to see everything to the right of me. I'm on the left side of the door. I'm not in the door frame yet. I can see the living room as I'm as I'm painting from right to left. And I run out of real estate for my eyes to see down. But the hall and the wall and the door frame block me. So I had to step in the doorway before I could make entry. And normally we peel off like centipedes. When you go through a door, one goes right, one goes left. One holds a long hallway if there's one, uh, just in case anybody pops out of a door. And we continue this, this kind of a weave, two-man person weave, until we can clear a house. And the entire time we're announcing. So when the door comes open, at this point, everybody's announcing, please search warrant, please search warrant. When I step in that door frame and look down that hallway, it's dark. And all I can see are two figures. They've got a they've got a a TV on in their room, so I'm getting that ambient light coming out of that room. We have uh, real mounted lights on our on our weapons, on our handguns. I could see two figures, but they were kind of blended together. They were so close. One was tall, one was shorter. And before I could, if, once I scanned from right to left, I stopped on the taller figure because I saw the gun pushed out. And by the time my mind registered this, this is all in split seconds. By the time my mind registered this, Kenneth Walker pulled the trigger and shot, and I felt the hit to my leg. I returned fire um, at Kenneth Walker, and then I got out of the way because I knew I'd been hit. And unfortunately, Kenneth Walker, being the coward he is, number one, he had his girlfriend in the hallway for whatever reason, instead of having her in a room call 911 if you think somebody's breaking into your house. But secondly, he left her in the hallway. He dove into the other room and she's standing by herself 
and tried to follow him in the room. Well, unfortunately, when she tried to follow him in the bedroom, that's when we believe she caught some of the rounds that knocked her to the ground. Um, and that tragically ended her life. But so when I knew I was hit, I reached down, I felt my leg and there was a substantial amount of blood in my hand. And I, so I, I knew instantly it wasn't just a, a normal leg wound because I've, I've treated many of those. I've seen them and I had a handful of blood. So I knew it had hit an artery. So I announced that to my guys at the scene. Wow. I mean, everything's going at the same time. This is bang, bang, bang. From the time I was shot to return fire and got offline. So so Miles stepped up uh, was about two seconds. And then he began firing and I yelled, I've been shot. I went down. Um, when I got to the to the concrete outside in the parking lot, uh, that's when Lieutenant Hoover came up and drug me out and they, they began working on me with the tourniquet. So it was a touch and go there for a few seconds. And that's where we get 12 seconds in the dark at. From the time that door's knocked open until the time I'm in the parking lot, gunshots are finished and they're working on my leg uh, was about 12 seconds. So it was that little 12 second period that all hell broke loose and it was chaotic. That's a yeah. That's incredible to think that all of that transpires in twelve seconds, um, and it's twelve seconds then that changed the community um, and yeah. really changed the world, which has to be an incredibly surreal feeling. Is there anything looking back? And and this is not a leading question at all. I'm genuinely curious. Is there anything looking back you think procedurally? Um, could have been different or could have stopped the tragedy that unfolded in, in any way? Is there, is there anything that, you know, you think might've been helpful to that end? Or do you think actually it was a a situation where you have an individual that is putting his girlfriend in harm's way? um, And, and that's the real sort of culpability. Well, ultimately, yes, I do blame the actions on Kenneth Walker. I, I firmly believe he knew we were the police or at least, he had he knew he heard us. They heard us announcing whether he thought we were criminals acting as police trying to break in because uh, Kenneth Walker's phone shows where uh, he was possibly involved in, in other home invasions where they talked about robbing people. Um, Kenneth Walker did sell narcotics. So and he talked about previously how a couple months prior he had had an interaction with Brianna's ex-boyfriend, Jamarcus, and he thought that may be him coming in the house. Right. So I don't know what his mind process was. Only he knows that. Um but going back to that, um, what was the frame of your question? I'm sorry. Basically, oh, we've done something different. Yeah, yes. there, yeah. Okay. So there was a, there's a couple of things that probably could have been done different. Um, the fact that we didn't know Kenneth Walker was in there is pretty substantial. Uh, they did have eyes on the, they had someone watching the apartment for a couple hours before we got there, but Kenneth and Brianna were already in the apartment. Um, but having watched this place for so long and not having the intel that Kenneth stayed there off and on, that would have been crucial because we there's no way we would have given that thing 45 seconds to a minute before we entered. Um, we would have done the normal five to 10 seconds. I know some people don't think that's a long time, but you go knock on a door and stand there for 10 seconds and see how long it feels waiting, knowing you've got to go on the other side and, and a potential bad guys on the other side of the door. And so generally that's what we do. We wait about 10 seconds. We hit the door and that gives you the psychological advantage because these people are overwhelmed. And they don't have time to gather their their belongings, their weapons, their faculties. And so we always have the advantage there. But that advantage is what keeps us safe. It's what keeps the bad guy safe. And in this situation, we gave so much time that they had they had time to prepare. And we saw it ended in catastrophe for both us and them. Mm. And so that's one thing that could have been done 
different by the investigators had they known that had we gotten maybe a better layout of the apartment most apartments are similar so we kind of know what they are but like brett didn't realize the the four it's an eightplex um he thought it was a fourplex so he didn't realize there was an apartment butting up to the wall behind uh brianna's wall so those type little things come in handy uh, tony james brought a ballistic shield with him he told me about it so it's my fault when we get up to the door i never look behind me to the guys you just trust that they're going to fall in place. And there had been so much um, so much chaos before this as far as little things happening that I forgot he was bringing a shield um, or, or that could have stopped the initial bullet that struck me. And then maybe we could have backed out and not returned fire. I don't know. There's a lot of little things you can question and look back on. But at the end of the day, the ultimate decision came down to Kenneth Walker uh, making that fatal decision for Brianna to, number one, bring her in the hall, number two, uh, fire at the police because his story doesn't add up because he said um, after he shot and went down, he threw his gun under a bed in another room. Well, if you think you're getting home invaded and somebody just came in and, and quote, assassinated your girlfriend, why would you get rid of your weapon? So his story right. just, it just doesn't add up. Yeah, that is odd. Um, <clears throat> that's quite odd. Was this the first time you had been shot in the line of duty? Yes, um, I've been shot at at search warrant. I've been shot at in the projects. Uh, the first search warrant I was shot at was back in, I think, 2010. Go through a door or we go up to a door and I pull the go to open the screen door and someone shoots through it. And the glass cut me, the bullet lodged in a fence behind my head. So, you know, I was very fortunate. God was looking out for me there. Um, but, yeah, it's the first time I've ever been shot or had to return fire. Mm. And have you executed a, a no knock warrant? Before the, obviously this is not, I'm not talking about this situation, but as just like in your, your job, have you used the no knock warrant in the past? Yes, we have. Uh, they're very rare. I was going to say, what, what are your thoughts on them? Just basically on drugs. I'm not for them uh, because it's narcotics. I mean, it, there's narcotics everywhere. Number one, but there's other ways to do it on. I think they're very vital for when you have murder suspects, kidnappings, those type things that you've got to have the element of surprise. Um, and even on no knocks though, there's never a case, even when SWAT does it or when we've done it in the past, where even when you conduct a no knock, you always announce, you may not announce that you're at the door to knock it in. But as soon as that door is breached, you're announcing police because we don't want to get shot. We don't want people to think that we're burglars coming into their house. Right. It's just stupid. And for I've, I've done, around 2000 entries on houses, there's not been one time I've not yelled police. So why on this very last one would I change the way I do things? That just doesn't make sense. Right. Yeah, no, that's an interesting perspective, certainly. I'm curious as to what it's been like taking this story, as you have, um, to mainstream media outlets, so-called mainstream media outlets, uh, you know, talking to CNN, talking to journalists at, you know, in, in corporate media, established media. Has it been really hostile and, and really hard to um, to sort of even have those conversations when I imagine you are sort of greeted with um, a lot of, I guess, biased perspectives in, in one direction that you then have to debunk? Yeah, it's um, the like when I do the straight hand interview, I, I walk in, I sit down. There's no like there's no small talk. Chummy get to know each other. You sit down, you acknowledge one another and instantly um, instantly it's uh, hostile. It's very I felt like I was on the, the defense stand in court. 
you know, like a, def- a defense attorney's coming at me. And so it was very um, disheartening, especially when you see the the interviews with Kenneth Walker by the same media, same stations. They're like, oh, poor baby. What happened to you? You know, how could the police do this to you? And I'm sitting back going, wait a minute. This dude shot me and you're coddling him and you're coming at me like I'm the criminal. Right. And so those things are irritating. And then and then, you know, there's some lessons learned through this that that I didn't know. Like if I ever did a mainstream ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, any of those again, uh, it would be this is going to be a live broadcast or I'm not doing it hmm. for the simple fact. I will not let them edit and cut things out and twist it like they did last time. Um, because there were so much good, positive things, uh, talking about the community, talking about police work and how we can change and, you know, different things that was just left out. And they, they picked, um, the few topics where things may have gotten a little, uh, disagreement and, you know, heated exchanges or whatever. And, and they just, they twisted that to their advantage. Has anyone approached you since you've, you know, sort of been in this high profile position where you're telling a, you know, an an alternate version of the story based on your own experience. Has anyone, have you been surprised um, by anyone's response? Has anyone come up to you and said, Hey man, I did not know that. Um, And I'm, I'm really glad to hear what you've shared and it's really changed my perspective. Have you been surprised by any responses like that? Uh, The main ones I'm surprised by are other police officers, uh, even on my own department that didn't know the whole story. I mean, here they were stuck out in these riots for over a year in Louisville. Cause that the ones in Louisville, we had a hundred days of really heavy stuff. And then we had um, an entire year, maybe a little bit more of every single day. Those guys were stuck out there and, and they protested and they were driving cars, blocking streets. Um, I mean, it was just, it was ridiculous how long uh, our city allowed this to go on. And the fact that those guys who were risking it all, after the fact, didn't even know the true story, just kind of blew my mind. But it, it went, it goes to show you how much it was shut down in Louisville on our department as far as getting the truth out, because I was separated from them. You know, I was on suspension and, and I didn't have access to them. And uh, so, yeah, those type people, and there's some, there's some conservative people too, in the beginning that were, were even sharing misinformation. And I was going, Oh my goodness, you're the guys that get on here and complain about that. And now you're doing the same exact thing. But some of those have been corrected since, which I'm grateful for. But, you know, I just want to give a word of caution because I know I have changed my view on things since this. Because yeah. now I'll, I'll watch documentaries and go, uh, I don't even know if that's true because right. I've seen the documentaries on Breonna Taylor. Not once have they ever gotten our opinion on it. It's all their side and it's so slanted and, and, and lied about that I'm going, I don't know what I can believe anymore. Yeah. And so many people have that experience. And it's so it's so I mean, just if you think about as somebody who was involved in the situation, I mean, let alone being a member of the public who's trying to parse truth and fiction from one another while you have a a life to carry on. It's like incredibly difficult. I, I mean, I definitely I mean, I read tons of articles about this and the media was citing people who said they didn't hear a knock. They didn't hear a knock. Um, and so I I'm quite certain that at one point I've said something publicly about that being a, a no knock warrant and being right. inappropriately a no, a no knock warrant. Um, and yet for the average news consumer, it has to be just impossible. Um, and that's really tragic. I mean, a very tragic situation in and of itself. Has the Louisville community, I know you're now retired, has the Louisville community um, 
healed from this has it or is this continuing to really have a negative impact on the police and the community and how important is it to have a good relationship between the police and the community um is it still suffering from the the bad media narrative here i think the vast majority of the city um support the police i don't think they ever had a super issue with um once they started hearing some of the truth, most of them uh, were supportive. You still have that loud minority that that just consumes social media that um, wants to get on TV and yell and and do that type of thing. Um, but the the greatest harm or the greatest projector of this stuff has been our mayor, and he's a progressive liberal that for whatever reason, it's almost like he's hell bent on, on keeping division. And, you know, he'll get up and say certain things like, Oh, we need unity. We need equity. We need all this thing. But then he's the least transparent that I've ever seen in our city. Um, he's very divisive. Like even when, when Hankinson got acquitted last week, he made a statement like we're still looking for justice for Breonna Taylor. And I know that, we feel it wasn't done in this case and you know stuff like that, that a mayor shouldn't be saying. And, um, and the problem with that is, is it divides the police and a certain segment of the black community, not all the black community, but there's a segment of them that, that take this stuff as gospel and without having any evidence or having any relevance in their own life, but yet they feel the need to uh, push the agenda. And so that's that's the harm. And but the city itself is somewhat healed. Downtown's still kind of a ghost town and they're trying to figure out how to revitalize that. But, you know, you've done a lot of damage and people don't want to go downtown because they're like, no, I saw for a year, a year, a year and a half what went on down there. There's no way because we saw that the mayor pulled the police back and wouldn't let them do their job. So why would they want to take their family and and take the chance our homicide rates the highest it's ever been our carjackings are the highest they've ever been uh, we had 188 homicides last year and like almost 800 shootings so there's there's a big gap and a big difference in what the mayor projects and what reality is and when you handcuff your police department do not allow them to do their job or let them do it with threats hanging over their head then they're going to get the result that they've gotten and I think people are starting to see that and starting to wake up. Uh, I just hope it's not too late. Right. And that's not good for anybody, least of no. all the, the disenfranchised people um, in neighborhoods that are suffering immensely. It's, it's right. plainly not good for anybody. Sergeant John Mattingly, thank you so much. Um, and what listeners don't know is that you sat and, and were patient for us during a tech glitch. <laughs> and we appreciate that immensely. We appreciate your perspective and your candor. Thank you so much for your time today. All right. I appreciate you. Absolutely. The book is out now. You can get it wherever books are sold. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. Yeah.